Radio that matters. Every morning with this morning. We uh, head on location now to Beijing, China, which has launched a new railway service from the Zhejiang province, uh, if my pronunciation is correct. Uh, if not, we'll get a correction in a moment in the eastern part of the country to travel all the way to London. It's the first train of this China railway uh, and it departed from Yiwu, a city near Shanghai last Monday. It's impressive, covering 12,000 kilometers in just 18 days and very much part of China's One Belt, One Road policy aiming to recreate the mysticism almost surrounding the Silk Road. Mr. Wade Shepard has certainly captured that mysticism as uh, he is working on a book having already been the author of Ghost Cities of China. He's a contributor at Forbes. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you? Yeah, very good. We've got a lot of romance around these subjects of railway travel and uh, the old Silk Road. But uh, what's the reality been like for you traveling along that area? Um, the reality is, um, well, I mean, what, what they say, they say they're kind of recreating the ancient Silk Road. And in a lot of ways, they, they are doing, um, they're, they're doing things that are very similar to that, kind of uh, building these massive trade hubs in places where there haven't been these trade hubs uh, since the days of the ancient Silk Road. And in these places, they try to, like, add value, added manufacturing, and, and kind of, like, doing all these things like they used to do in the past. Um, as far as like the romanticism, um, as of yet, we don't have the caravan uh, surprise of like all these traders from like all over the world meeting together in these places. But um, we might in the future. Um, they're still very early on in the project. Can I just clarify something straight away? Because I, I personally would find it fascinating to travel along this railway, twelve thousand kilometers to London from China. Is it actually something that passengers, uh, ordinary passengers, can benefit from, or is it strictly cargo? No, as of right now, these rail lines are strictly cargo. Um, I'm trying to get on a train um, going across Kazakhstan in a couple of weeks. But um, for the most part, no, these, these are not trains that you would want to uh, ride on unless you were uh, a vagabond or, or a hobo or, or something <laughs> right. like that. Okay. So how are you doing your traveling around? Because I, I read a piece that you found yourself in the middle of nowhere in, in Horgos on the China-Kazakhstan border. Uh, and yeah. and, yeah, and that was an interesting an article. Theme in the, in these, yeah, that's, that's been an ongoing theme. And in, in the past two years, I've been traveling along these routes because, I mean, they're building this infrastructure in these new cities and new trade hubs in places where literally there was nothing before. That's not like one of the commonest, most common things that people have been saying to me um, along these travels is, you know, two years ago, there was nothing here. Five years ago, there was nothing here. And when I show up, it still kind of looks like there's nothing there, right? Because these places are, like, emerging um, very literally in the middle of nowhere. So how do they make it work uh, to build a, a hub, for example, for uh, tech expertise in, in Horgos with nothing else for miles to see? Well, I mean, it, it's a multi-stage process, uh, process, and it's a very long-term process. I mean, people... I mean, the countries that are building this aren't really looking for returns until like 20, 25, 30 years from now. Um, and the first stage of that project, this project is building the infrastructure, uh, building the rail lines, building the infrastructure, uh, building the logistics hubs, um, and, and kind of like creating this framework 
um, that the rest of the network can kind of grow off of. I mean, the model for this development is um, is Dubai, uh, the Jabal Ali uh, free, free zone in Dubai, um, where they very literally went out to the middle of nowhere and built this new city um, that kind of grew off of these uh, logistical transport uh, hubs. Well, it, like I said, it's, it sounds very romantic, but there's a very practical element there too. And actually the reality sounds almost quite Spartan and, and brutal for now. How are you personally able to research this with the, the barriers presumably that exist? Um, well, I mean, those barriers are kind of dropping. I mean, this, this network is, uh, it's, it's nothing if not high tech. I mean, the roads that they're being built are some of the most modern in the world. The rail right. lines, some of the most modern in the world. And these ports are, you know, they're aiming to make them, you know, not just a step up, step above what the country currently has, but they're making them on global, on, on the global standard. And they're inviting in, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of developers who have this expertise, such as uh, Dubai Ports, um, they're building a lot of ports, and they're kind of making it like um, very, very high standard, very, very first-class uh, infrastructure. They're building in these places that, you know, they, they kind of like skipped many steps in the middle um, as far as building a lot of this infrastructure. So, I mean, traveling around these places, yeah, I and mean, you go out into the middle of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, you're in, you know, one of the most high-tech, you know, dry ports, like on the planet. So it's kind of uh, surreal in a lot of ways. Yeah. And China's obviously already had a highly sophisticated trade system for some time, reaching across the world with its products, including to European cities by railway, but by all sorts of means of transportation. Why, why is this new project going to make a difference, even if it is down the road? Okay. Um, I mean, as of now, China has 39 uh, rail lines, um, direct uh, freight trains going between China and Europe. Um, why this makes a difference? Because it fills a gap. Um, in, in the transportation um, um, offerings uh, between, you know, slow uh, sea transport and um, really expensive air transport. And it takes about half the time to see, you know, at, at about, you know, a fifth of the price as air to ship products along these trains. It's actually very cheap. I mean, I mean right now it costs maybe $2,000 to ship a container from China to Europe and a lot less to ship a container from um from Europe to China. And when we're looking at the fact that the items that are being transported along these rail lines are typically high-value goods, like electronics, high-fashion items, and kind of like premium meats, fresh meat, and, and, and premium produce, um, the value of the products that are being shipped um, is so high that, you know, the cost of transporting them is, is, really, um, is, is really negligible. And... Um, and economically speaking, yeah, it is giving these um, these freight forwarders and giving these companies a new way to ship their products mm. um, across the Eurasian landmass. And when we look at China and we look at this broader movement of moving production and manufacturing ever farther inward and farther and farther towards the west, west, and we talk about Horgos, which is on the China-Kazakhstan border. Now, if you were going to make something in Horgos, or even Chengdu, for that matter, which is in central China, and want to ship it to Europe, I mean, you're going to have to, like, you know, ship it overland first, all the way across China, from the west to the east of China. It's like thousands of kilometers just to ship it west again. And so these, um, these new rail lines are kind of cutting out um, that unneeded, um, that unneeded stuff of shipping products east to ship them west, and you can ship them directly west, um, directly um, from, from the places that they're being made. How interested are you in the political ramifications of this? China's facing some challenges, obviously, with a number of traditional trade partners like the United States, with ourselves here in South mm -hmm. Korea right now. Uh, this is a, a route that moves in the other direction. It ends in the United Kingdom, which is set to leave the European Union. H how much should we be reading mm -hmm. into that? 
Well, I mean, any time two countries kind of interact together economically, or especially when they bolster, uh, bolster and raise their trade ties, they're also like inter intertwining themselves politically as well. So these kind of so you can't really separate the economic from the political as well. But one thing that's really interesting um, during the Xi era in China is that whenever there's like um, a, polit- a political or economic or diplomatic vacuum in the world, China's always right there to fill it. So when the EU and the United States like slapped sanctions on Russia, China was right there um, with you know investment deals and kind of trade packs and and everything to kind of make up the difference. Um, same thing in Sri Lanka um, when the EU and the US started like putting restrictions on the country due to um, perceived um, or alleged war crimes. Um, China was right there, and the country just made this massive pivot over to China, and now they're resulting like eight billion dollars in infrastructure investment. So, like, um, and, and the UK and, and Brexit is, is really no different. Um, right now, the UK is having somewhat of a diplomatic breakup with the EU, and China is right at their door with, you know, a lot of big offers of investment, trying to in, trying to um, trying to bolster these these political ties through economic uh, investment. Yeah, really interesting to hear you say that, and it in some ways ties into your previous work on those ghost cities now being filled up by actual people. <laughs> Some of them look very odd, mm-hmm. you know, fake Parisian cities uh, now coming to life. Um, but mm-hmm. China's also made a lot of recent headlines for its work in renewable energy. Uh, do, you, do you take quite seriously these these policies, the, the fact that they might stick in the long term, despite some rather pessimistic economic outlooks for the country? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, China does things different than, uh, than, than we do it in the West. It's not always about the dollars and cents. And a lot of these investments are sometimes not being done to make a profit, but to like, get the Communist Party of China stuff that the Communist Party wants. Like these trains, there's this 39 network, uh, this, this 39 train network going between China and Europe. That's pretty much 100% subsidized by the Chinese government. Mm. They're not looking to make a profit off of this, but they want it because it, it allows them to move towards uh, bigger goals, as such as uh, you know, establishing the conceptual link between countries um, for diplomatic reasons. I mean, these trains have really, they've really become the new pandas. In China, you know, China's long, long-standing practice of panda diplomacy, like as a sign of friendship, you know, they'll give a country a panda, and now as a sign of friendship, China's kind of giving these countries uh, these trains, right? Like, okay, we're gonna like you know join together um, and have more and more economic and political interaction, and we're gonna give you this train that goes from our country to your country, and we're gonna subsidize it, and your manufacturers can use it and whatever. But I mean, there's definitely a symbolic mm. aspect um, to these to these trains, Mr. Shepherd. Thank you so much for being on location. Good luck with your continued travels along a road less travelled for some period of time, but looks like it'll get a bit busier than you, Silk Road. Mr Wade Shepard, also author of Ghost Cities of China, and that's just about it for our show today. Thank you very much for your company. We'll be back tomorrow from 7.05. Stay with us for Careerscape and Kurt Asian, just after your news headlines with Julie Sohn.